Governmental lobbying has always been a controversial activity, not always bad, certainly not always good. There are over 12,000 professional lobbyists working in Washington, D.C. right now. Their goal is to influence policy on behalf of a specific group or category of people. For example, the catfish farmers of America spent more than $300,000 lobbying in 2011. The Balloon Council, are there any members of the Balloon Council here? Oh, just here, just one? Okay. <laughs> they uh, worked to drum up support for the Helium Stewardship Act. Hope you're all stewarding your helium properly. And the American Dehydrated Onion and Garlic Association used to spend $300,000 every single year to influence U.S. import policy. Now, in the book of Numbers here, as we read, there's a fascinating account where five sisters come before the Lord to lobby on behalf of themselves and a specific category of people. Their appeal, this situation establishes case law for the nation of Israel. Nation of Israel is brand new. Uh, before they were a family, they grew uh, into a great multitude in Egypt, came out in the Exodus, wandered in the wilderness, and now they're about to enter into the promised land and become a nation. But it's more than case law that's happening here, as important as that is. This story is going to demonstrate to us that in our relationship with God, his desire is that we listen to him and that we consider what he said and then we boldly apply our faith to our lives. Because when we do that, the world is changed by God's power working in and through us. So let's take a look at this example and see how it might stir our hearts as we seek to walk with the Lord here in this modern time. We begin in Numbers 27, verse 1. The daughters of Zelophehad approached. Zelophehad was the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Maker, son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. These were the names of his daughters, Mela, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, Tirzah. He had a rhyming thing going on. Uh, you, you know, fans of the Little Mermaid, it's kind of like Triton's daughters. They all had that rhyming thing going on. They stood before Moses, the priest, Eleazar, the leaders, and the entire community at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And they said, our father died in the wilderness, but he was not among Korah's followers who gathered together against the Lord. Instead, he died because of his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan, since he had no son? Give us property among our father's brothers." So this is after the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. These five ladies are members of the younger generation that was going into Canaan to receive it as an inheritance from the Lord. If you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you know, through a year, and you get kind of into the Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy stretch, it, it feels like it takes a really long time. Uh, the truth is Deuteronomy is a, a speech that that Moses delivered to this younger generation. It didn't take a super, super long time. And so they're right on the edge of crossing the Jordan, going into Jericho and taking the promised land. They're about to, that's about to happen. Uh, but first we have a couple of these scenes in the book of Numbers. Now these young ladies, the daughters of Zelophehad, they had been listening to the commands of the Lord through Moses and from their parents. They had been hearing how things were going to work as Moses explained the new laws and regulations and plans for this fledgling nation. They heard all of the, the, the regulations and believed the stories of God's power and his faithfulness. 
And we see that they were preparing for the next stage. The next stage was, and now it's time to cross the Jordan River, go into Canaan, and receive it as an inheritance. But at some point, as they were considering and thinking and planning, they realized there was a problem. Because once they got married, they would be joining another family tree. And since they had no brothers, that means that their family name, their family tree would cease to exist. Because they would take on their husband's family and their kids would belong to that clan and that family. And so after the five of them got married, that's it. That's the end of the Zelophehad family tree. And it's the end of the inheritance that that family was supposed to receive. And so they talk it over. They think it through. They consider uh, the promises of God, the character of God, and the, the, the directions that God has given them. And they decide to come and raise this issue to Moses. In fact, they had undoubtedly worked through several layers of bureaucracy before getting to this point. Earlier uh, in Israel's history, we saw Moses settled every problem that all of the Israelites had. And his father-in-law came and said, hey, man, what you're doing is going to wear you out. Why don't you establish kind of a, a bureaucracy that people go through? It ultimately led to what we would call the Sanhedrin. Uh, and so they would have worked through several layers of bureaucracy bureaucracy before getting to this point. And here they are. But notice what verse two says. They didn't just come before Moses, which would have been intimidating enough as it is, but they also came before God's high priest and all the leaders of Israel and the entire community. And they're doing it before the very presence of God himself at the entrance of his tabernacle. That's a lot of pressure. Most people don't like public speaking. They avoid it at many costs or feel super nervous. Now, imagine you had to go and speak before Congress, the Supreme Court, the President of the United States, and it was going to be televised and everyone in the nation was going to be watching your speech. And your speech was going to be, I have, uh, I have a problem that I would like you guys to fix. Now, on top of that, scenes like this one don't usually turn out very well in the books of Leviticus and Numbers, right? If you track through those books and you see what happens when people showed up to Moses to say, we don't like something that's happening, when they came to dissent or complain about something, it usually ended up with fire falling from heaven and consuming them, or the earth opening up and swallowing a bunch of people, or a plague breaking out and decimating the camp. That's usually what happened when people knocked on Moses' door and said, hey, we've got a gripe here. But that's not what's happening in this situation. There's a very key difference here because these sisters are not coming to complain and they're certainly not coming to, to, uh, to grieve that they don't have leeks and garlic. That's one of the things that some of the Israelites did during this portion of Israel's history. They said, oh, yes, we're eating honey cakes from heaven and God's providing all the water we need and all that, but where are the leeks and the garlic? And they complained and grumbled about it. They weren't grumbling against Moses. They weren't saying God had failed. They weren't saying we want to go back to Egypt. Instead, what they're saying is, hey, listen, we believe God. We believe everything that God has said. And we believe that the land that we haven't received yet, we believe it's going to be given to Israel. And we don't want to sit back and allow God to, uh, well, what God wants to do to pass us by. We don't want to miss out on what the Lord has promised. And so as readers, we should be very impressed and inspired by their boldness. Because what do we know about the situation so far? We know that these girls had no parents. 
They had no brothers. They had no husbands. They were single and on their own. They were of marrying age, but they weren't very young or they weren't very old. So in their time and in this ancient culture, the ancient generation they're in, they didn't have a lot of leverage. In fact, they had no leverage. Uh, they, they weren't able to come and, and make this kind of request in any other society or any other culture. But they realized as they were working through this problem in their personal lives, they realized that, okay, it seems like we're going to get passed over, but we know that God is generous and we know that God is faithful. And together as a family, they came to the conclusion that God wanted the same thing for them that he wanted for everybody else in the nation. He wasn't the kind of God that leaves behind orphans or widows or those without brothers or without husbands. He was the kind of God that brings everyone along, no matter how old or young, no matter how weak or strong, no matter how rich and powerful or completely without leverage. And this is wonderful boldness when they come to Moses and the rest of Israel here. But there's a big difference between biblical boldness, which we all want to have, and the world's boldness. What the world calls boldness is often just being a jerk, is often just being rude, is often just letting your selfishness run amok and demanding it of people around you. Biblical boldness is very different and it's demonstrated here. They don't come in anger. They aren't brash in their speech. They acknowledge that their father wasn't perfect and that they're not perfect either, that he was a sinner and had to deal with the consequences of his sin. But they said, but listen, as a family, despite our imperfection, we are not rebels. We're on the Lord's side. He said, they said, hey, well, he wasn't part of Korah's rebellion. That was an ugly thing that happened a short time before this. They said, hey, that wasn't us. We're on the Lord's side. And they realized that they were the only ones left to advocate on behalf of their father's family. There wasn't anyone else. It was just them. And so in that situation, hard as it would have been, uh, improbable as it would have been for them to get what they're asking for, they nominate themselves to be vessels for God's purposes. Effectively, they're saying, like we read in Isaiah a few weeks ago, where he said, here I am, send me. They're saying, here we are, send us into the promised land. We believe God. We're on board with this whole inheritance thing. We want to be a part of it. We don't want to fall through the cracks and miss out on what the spirit of God is going to do through this group of people. Jesus in the New Testament said something that is absolutely stunning when we stop to think about it. It's a, it's a, a phrase that we're familiar with and we've heard a lot of times, but it, it should shock us. He said, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. And that is astonishing when we pause to recognize that every single Christian has been called and commissioned to be a part of God's global work in all sorts of ways, big and small, right? So the Lord says, okay, if you're a Christian, if you're born again, I've brought you into my family. I've adopted you as a son or a daughter. I've also given you a place to serve in my household or to serve in my vineyard, to be a part of the work of harvest and planting and cultivating and all of that that I'm going to do. Every single one of my children are called and commissioned into that work. And then Jesus says, the harvest is ready. The fields are white for harvest. Where are the workers? There's really not very many of them. That should blow our minds and cause us to pause and consider, okay, well, where am I at on that spectrum? 
And the, the, the fact of the matter is, according to Jesus, many believers are content to let the opportunities to serve God pass them by, content to let others be used by God. It's not that there aren't workers, it's that there aren't workers showing up to do the work in the Lord's analogy here. Now, these daughters of Zelophehad are looking forward at what God has called the nation into and what he has given them opportunity to be a part of. And they say, we don't want to be a footnote on the margin of God's history. We want God's plan and promises and power to not only be operating in our lives, but operating through the future of our family uh, and the kids that we're going to have and and the family tree that's going to grow from us. Verse 5 Moses brought their case before the Lord. Now, this is interesting. For all of his wisdom and all of his knowledge and experience, Moses did not know the answer to this issue. He had to go and personally dialogue with the Lord about it. That's amazing. Because Moses had more education, more knowledge, more experience, more gifting for this kind of stuff than anybody in the entire world. The first 40 years of his life, he was raised in the the courts of Pharaoh, in the palace of Pharaoh to be like a leader in Egypt on top of all of the other stuff, on top of the instruction he received from the Lord and on top of the power he was receiving from God, the Holy Spirit and the revelation and all of that. So what's going on here? Because when you read through the law of Moses, there are all these meticulous details at so many levels. God had all of these plans and provisions for every aspect of life in Israel, from the national holidays that they would celebrate all the way down to the food they would eat, the clothes they would wear, and their weekly schedule, right? So how is it possible that this issue fell through the cracks? Certainly these sisters weren't the only family in this situation where there were daughters and no sons. God hadn't messed up. He wasn't surprised by this complication. A great theme of this story and other parts of the Bible is that God wants us to think through what he has revealed and then apply it to our personal lives and to personally, purposefully develop an understanding of what he wants for us and how he does things and that we seek him out more and more for wisdom as we walk with him. That's what a relationship with God is about. That we stay in pace with the Lord, that we stay near the Lord, that we follow after him, that we be in communion with him. He says, abide with me, stay near to me so that I can lead you down this specific path that I have carved out for your life. And to do that, we need to constantly be pressing into the Lord and staying near to him and following after him, keeping our eyes on him, all of those things that we read in the New Testament. And so as we seek the Lord and as we apply what he's revealed to our actual lives, there's going to be things that he doesn't reveal to us until we seek him for it. Jesus did this with the parables, right? We're told in the gospels that he spoke in parables all the time. Why? So that those who wanted to understand, those who wanted to actually be in communion with him would have to follow up and draw near to him and say, Lord, explain this truth to me. We see the 12 disciples doing that, right? They said, man, great teaching. What in the world does it mean? And he says, great, now I get to explain it to you. Because listen, faith in Christ isn't meant to be like what you did in school where you memorized your vocabulary list for the quiz on Friday 
and you cram it all in as much as you can right before the test. And then you fill out that test. And as soon as you're, you hand that, that test in, it's all gone, right? It all evaporates immediately from your mind. Do any of us actually remember anything that we learned in junior high or high school, or, right? The truth is studies show that high school students forget 95% of what they've learned after three days, Right? Because we just think, hey, I have to get through this test. And once I'm through this test, then it's on to the next thing. And so I can just shed all of that information from my short-term memory because I don't need to worry about it anymore. But listen, that's not what faith is supposed to be about. That's not what the Lord wants for our spiritual knowledge or our spiritual understanding. He says, no, I, I don't want you to just cram it in there for the test of salvation, right? And for that moment where you say, okay, I believe Jesus saved me. He says, what I want you to do is write it on your heart. So that from your heart, your life can be bearing fruit and so that you can walk through the rest of your life day by day, knowing the way that I'm leading you and the way that I want you to do things. And so that your heart can be calibrated to be, be like my heart so that you can have my mind and my understanding and my wisdom and my insight, those sorts of things. Moses, the man who spoke to God face to face, the man who stood in the presence of God's glory, a miracle worker, a deliverer of God's people. He needed to go to God for leading and understanding. He needed to go and talk with the Lord about what to do in this situation and to be personally directed. And if he needed it, obviously we need it. Verse six, the Lord answered him. Well, Zelophehad's daughters say is correct. You are to give them an hereditary property among their father's brothers and transfer their father's inheritance to them. Tell the Israelites, when a man dies without having a son, transfer his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father has no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative of his clan. He will take possession of it. This is to be a statutory ordinance for the Israelites as the Lord commanded Moses. So wait, they were right? He says, yeah, what these ladies are saying is absolutely right. Well, then why not give this stipulation from the beginning? Clearly God had a plan. He didn't have to go figure it out. He was like, yeah, here's what I want you to do. And here's like the breakout of it. It's because a relationship with God is not meant to be abstract or simply theoretical or hypothetical or just a uh, a periodic table of elements that's on a wall somewhere that we reference if we feel like it. A relationship with God is meant to be applied to our personal circumstances in the here and now. And what we find in both Testaments is that sometimes God waits to lay something out for us, either leading or insight or even blessing in some cases, because frankly, we're not very interested in it. Remember what we read in James? He says, you do not have because you do not ask. It's not because God wants to withhold. It's because he says, do you, do you want what I want to do in your life? Are you interested in these things that I'm promising? Now, there's no talk of this family deserving the inheritance. They didn't. None of the Israelites did. In Deuteronomy chapter nine, Moses would say to the congregation, he said, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. It was all a work of grace. 
It wasn't that God had to show up to the daughters of Zelophehad and say, you're right, we've been withholding this right from you and we're wrong, so we're adjusting that. That's not it at all. It's all a work of grace. And we know it's a work of grace because the Lord went beyond what they requested, these bold sisters, and he opened up access to inheritance, not just for this one family, but for any family in perpetuity who is facing the same situation. This is who our God is. He's not trying to withhold any good thing from you. He's not making a promise that he doesn't actually want to fulfill in your life. When they had nowhere to go, he welcomed them into his presence. When they had no earthly father, he stepped in. He said, I'll be your father. I'll take care of your inheritance. I'll provide for you. I'll protect you. I will look to your future. What these bold young ladies asked was absolutely unprecedented. Improbable that anyone would agree to it. Nothing like this had happened before. But the great news that we know from the word of God and from examples like this one is that we serve a God who loves to do unprecedented things. Not unbiblical things, not things that contradict what he has said or done before, but unprecedented things, new works. Here's an example from history that might help illustrate. In 1450, there we are, Johannes Gutenberg invents his printing press and he establishes a publishing house there. And soon after, he produces 180 copies of the only book that would come off of his printing press, the Bible. And because Johannes applied his faith to his specific life, God began to do an unprecedented work because of it. Because Johannes said, you know what, I'm a, I'm a publisher now, I'm a printer now, and, and what, what should I do? I love the Lord, and I love his word, and I want others to have it. Why don't I apply the fact that I believe in God's revelation, and I'll apply that to my actual life, and I'll print these copies of the Bible, and human history was forever changed in one of the most dramatic moments in all of human history. Everything pivoted, everything changed. In the Gutenberg Bible that he produced, Johannes wrote these lines. He said, let us break the seal which seals up the holy things and give wings to truth in order that she may win every soul that comes into the world by her word, no longer written at great expense by hands easily palsied, but multiplied like the wind by an untiring machine. Yes, it is a press, certainly, but a press from which shall soon flow in inexhaustible streams the most abundant and most marvelous liquor that has ever flowed to relieve the thirst of man. He understood that God wanted to do something unprecedented through his simple faith. Through Gutenberg's living faith, God started something new, an unprecedented work of power and grace where every single person eventually could have copies of the living word of God easily at their disposal. But here's the thing, laws often have unintended consequences. It happens in our society, right? The more uh, laws they make regulating deforestation in the United States, the more global deforestation happens, studies have found. Uh, When stricter safety regulations are implemented in a society, individuals then tend to engage in more dangerous behavior. Scientists call it the Peltzman effect. Right, So when, when seatbelt laws went to effect, more accidents start to happen because people drive more rec- recklessly. Unintended consequences. In the last chapter of Numbers, if you jump nine chapters ahead to the very last chapter of Numbers, Zelophehad's family is back in the spotlight again because some other members of the clan of Manasseh realize there's an unintended consequence to the new statute. 
Look at verse one of Numbers 36. The family heads from the clan of the descendants of Gilead, the son of Maker, son of Manasseh, who were from the clans of the sons of Joseph, approached and addressed Moses and the leaders who were heads of the Israelite families. They said, the Lord commanded my Lord to give the land as an inheritance by lot to the Israelites. My Lord was further commanded by the Lord to give our brothers a loaf of heads inheritance to his daughters. If they marry any of the men from the other Israelite tribes, their inheritance will be taken away from our father's inheritance and added to that of the tribe into which they marry. Therefore, part of our allotted inheritance would be taken away. When the Jubilee comes for the Israelites, their inheritance will be added to that tribe into which they marry, and their inheritance will be taken away from the inheritance of our ancestral tribe. So this is an issue. When a woman was married in Israel, her inheritance would transfer to whatever tribe she was married into. Now, since that land was inheritance and it wasn't purchased, it wouldn't be transferred back to the original tribe, in this case Manasseh, in the year of Jubilee. And that's a problem. Because if you have a paper Bible and you flip to the back and you see the maps there, you'll often have, uh, you know, it'll show the different geographical territories of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's a problem because those territories needed to have geographical unity. The tribe was going to have to work together to conquer their land, and it was, it was a whole thing. But if, if some of these daughters who received their father's inheritance then married outside the tribe, let's say you were from Manasseh and you married somebody from Ephraim, then your land would transfer to Ephraim, and Ephraim would have little islands of land within the geographical tribe of Manasseh. It's a problem. It breaks up the unity of the tribe and the, and the geography would be all messed up. It's kind of like how there's a couple little tiny countries in the world that are surrounded by another country. The Vatican is the most famous one. It's this little tiny bloop in the middle of Italy, right? You know, we're our own thing. Are you though? But, and so it's, a, it's an issue. What I love about this is just when we think we've got things figured out, we realize that there's always more we don't know. Uh, that's not just true in regular life. It's true in the spiritual life especially. In this life, we need ongoing guidance and leading and wisdom from the Lord. We're never going to get to a point where it's like, okay, I got my graduate degree in spiritual things and so now I'm done and now I'm an expert. Now everyone looks to me for answers and I don't need to ask for answers anymore. Moses knew more than any of them knew. He spoke to God face to face, sometimes 40 days at a time. He was receiving revelation. All this stuff is happening. He has all the education, all the expertise. And he's like, yeah, I need ongoing uh, revelation. I need ongoing direction. I need ongoing dialogue with the Lord to know how to make these choices. And the same is true for our lives, of course. And that's why it's a great comfort when you get to a section of scripture like Proverbs chapter one. And in Proverbs chapter one, it's speaking specifically of the Proverbs, but it, it stretches out to the rest of the living word of God, which is all that we need for life and for godliness. And it says, listen, here's God's wisdom. It's for your whole life. Every aspect of your life, it's for every day of your life. If you're young and inexperienced and don't know anything, you can learn what to do by going here to God's word. And then I love that it also says, if you're already wise and discerning, it's still gonna give you yet more wisdom and more guidance because we are going to need it every single day of our lives, no matter how long you've been walking with the Lord. Verse five, so Moses commanded the Israelites at the word of the Lord, what the tribe of Joseph's descendants says is right. 
This is what the Lord had commanded concerning Zelophehad's daughters. If they marry any, excuse me, they may marry anyone they like, provided they marry within a clan of their ancestral tribe. No inheritance belonging to the Israelites is to transfer from tribe to tribe because each of the Israelites is to retain the inheritance of his ancestral tribe. Any daughter who possesses an inheritance from an Israelite tribe must marry someone from the clan of her ancestral tribe so that each of the Israelites will possess the inheritance of his fathers. No inheritance is to transfer from one tribe to another because each of the Israelite tribes is to retain his inheritance. So according to the Lord, the daughters of Zelophehad were right And these guys from Manasseh were right. Two rights made a right. How is that possible? It seemed like they are conflicting one another, right? But in this complicated situation, it wasn't girl versus boy. It wasn't us versus them. They were all on the same side. They're all trying to figure it out and navigate God's leading and submit himself to his plans. Now, on top of the legal rules that are being established, the case law, There is something very personal going on, something that should speak to us about our faith in Christ. Because what did the sisters do in chapter 27? They came before Moses, before the Lord, before everyone, and they said, we believe in God's plan. We trust that he's going to do what he's promised. We want to be a part of his inheritance. Please give it to us. And now you fast forward, they have the opportunity to show if they really believe what they said they believe. Was it really about honoring God? Was it really about their calling and their place in God's plan and, and, and this opportunity that he was giving the, the families of Israel? Was it really about that or was it about owning a parcel of land? Was it just about gaining wealth for themselves? Their faith is going to be put to the test here. You see, God's response is, you can have exactly what you ask for, daughters of Zelophehad. I love that you ask for it, but if you want it, you must remain within a boundary that I'm going to establish for you. You can have your father's inheritance, but to keep it, you have to marry within your own tribe, Manasseh. Now, that's a reasonable ask. It's not like Manasseh was two guys, right? It's a big old tribe, tens of thousands of people. But even though this ask was reasonable, It was one that required a choice to walk in faith and be obedient to God's command. It's the exact same thing God did for Adam and Eve. Eat of any of the trees of the garden. There's one tree I want you to not eat from. There's one boundary I want you to not cross. I want you to show me if your faith is about you or if your faith is about your love for me and your willingness to to allow me to be the king of your life. Walking with God means keeping within the boundary markers that he has given. And God gives his people boundary markers in our relationships, in our thoughts, in our speech, in our behavior. He gives us boundary markers. Now, those boundaries are given for our good. He's not trying to withhold anything that is good from us. And he gives us great freedom within his boundaries. Let's take Christian marriage as an example since marriage is in the spotlight here. God gave these young ladies freedom to marry anyone they'd like, which is a remarkable amount of freedom, by the way. That was not the kind of freedom that other cultures gave women at that time, was it? He says, marry anybody you like, but it has to be someone from your tribe. It has to be someone from Manasseh. And so let's look at our own uh, Christian marriage in the New Testament. You single Christians are free to marry anyone you'd like as long as they're part of the family, God's family. 
you must marry a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ. It's for your good, and it is the boundary that God established in passages like 2 Corinthians 6. You know, we say, hey, I want God to bless my life. I want him to do good things through me. I want him to, you know, honor my marriage and all that kind of thing. And the Lord says, great, I want that too. I totally want that. In fact, I want to do that more than you want me to do it for you. And I'm ready to pour out my grace for you if you will keep within these boundary markers. If you will stay on this path that I have carved out for you. So now the sisters had the chance to practice their faith. Did they really care about the higher ideals that they talked about in chapter 27? Or was their lobbying just about lining their pockets? In Deuteronomy 5, Moses was speaking to all the nation of Israel. And he said this, the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. He said to me, I've heard the words that these people have spoken to you. Everything they've said is right. Sounds a lot like what the Lord had said to these ladies, right? But then the Lord goes on, he said, if only you had a heart to fear me and keep my commands always. He says, because your hearts, you don't fear me. You're not keeping my commands. What you said was good, but if only your hearts would follow up. And so these sisters are being given this choice and it's an object lesson for us. They could choose inheritance within the gracious, generous rules of God, their father and king. Or they could choose absolute freedom, marry whoever you want outside of your tribe, but then forfeit what God has set aside for you. You say you want what God has set aside for you. Okay, well, let's see if you want it. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 10, the daughters of Zelophehad did as the Lord commanded Moses. Mala, Tirzah, Hagla, Milcah, Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad married cousins on their father's side. They married men from the clans of the descendants of Manasseh, son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained within the tribe of their father's clan. These ladies are fantastic. Great, great examples to us. No complaining, no suggesting that God was doing something wrong or cheating them in some way. What incredible faithfulness. Not only were they bold, we see that they were dutiful. They were devoted to the Lord. They said yes to the Lord. They doubled down on their trust in him. Yes, we believe. And yes, we will do it. And we are not impoverished because you've given us a boundary or given us this direction. In fact, we're happy to obey you. It's magnified all the more because this is the very end of Numbers, the last page of the book. And it's an incredible ending because this is a book that catalogs a lot of failure and disobedience and just bummer for the nation of Israel. In chapter 11, the people complain to God again and again that they don't like what's happening. They don't like the food. It leads to judgment. In chapter 12, Aaron and Miriam challenge Moses' leadership. They don't like the woman he married. It leads to judgment. Chapters 13 and 14, the scouts go out, see the land. They tell the people, you can't go into the land. Let's not go in at all. Judgment. Chapter 16, hundreds of people rebel against Moses. Judgment. It happens over and over and over again. Challenges and complaints and disobediences and failures. You get to chapter 25, just before where we started, and the people are openly worshiping Baal in the Lord's presence. Judgment. But here's this one family, these brave, bold, devoted young ladies who have every reason to complain, every reason to give up, every reason to be mad, but they believe God and know that the point of faith is to apply it to their lives. And so they close out this book, having changed the nation and the future of their people because of their bold and obedient faith. Their example reminds us of a lot of things like the fact that God is a very generous father. 
that he's ready to move heaven and earth so we can lay hold of the good things that he has set aside for us. But he waits to see who's interested, who wants in, who wants to join him and walk with him, who wants to be used. And he says, listen, sometimes you don't have because you don't ask. And then when we do go to him and request that he move on our behalf, Lord, move in my life, move on my behalf in this situation, we, are then having, we will then have the opportunity to prove whether that ask we're making is being done with wrong motives for our own pleasures or whether we're actually walking by faith and believing what God has promised and saying, I want to join in with what you're doing. I want to follow you and go with you. Because walking with Jesus means keeping within his boundaries and staying near to him. But that's exactly where we want to be, where we are being changed and bringing change for our Lord thanks to his power and grace and faithfulness to us. Let's pray.